Wow, have a seat. Don't you love it when we have church? I love that. That worship. Wow. Well, my name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors on the team. I have the privilege of of speaking to you this morning. And uh, I just want to say, when I listen to the worship today, and I'm sure it's like this every week, but I've I've not been able to make some of our worship times, there's nothing half-hearted about it. Nothing. And that's really kind of a theme I want to talk about this morning, is this whole idea of wholeheartedness. And if you've been with us, or if you've not been with us even, uh, these last several weeks we've been talking about the theme of worship, which is fundamental to everything we do as followers of Jesus, understanding the role of worship in our lives. And so for seven weeks we've been walking through the Scriptures, looking at different Bible characters, and part of what I want you to see is every one of them worship God differently. You know, God never puts somebody else's number on your jersey. We're all different. And and he speaks to us in different ways. And we looked at David, and David worshiped God with all-out passion. I mean, he, he uh, he, he was just totally engaged in his worship to God. He was outlandish in his worship. And then little Hannah comes along, and Hannah struggles with infertility, and she, she battles what so many women face today, and she wants a child, there is no child, and, and she prays, and she, she says, God, if you just give me this child, I'll dedicate him back to you, and God honors her prayer, and, and she honors her promise, and gives this child back to the Lord, as a servant of the Lord. And then Abraham, we looked at him last week, Abraham Think about his amazing story, this man of faith, this man who the Bible says he went where God led him, even though he didn't know where he was going. Later on, as he's worshiping the Lord, uh, God says to him that that, that he's perhaps going to give up the life of his only son. And even when it didn't make sense, we saw Abraham worship God. Now today we're going to look at a Bible character that is, is relatively unknown. Most of you couldn't put in a thimble what you know about Enoch because there's hardly more than a thimble in the Bible about Enoch. He's not a very um, major character in the Bible, although I don't think there are any such thing as a minor character in Scripture. He's not insignificant to be sure, and, and he begins to set the pace for something that I want you to see, but it's often missed. That is, there's a theme that runs all the way from the Bible. It starts way back at the beginning. It can seem a little convoluted along the way because of a thing called life. You know how life has a way of breaking into your experience? Uh, Who was it, the great theologian that said, life is what happens while you're making other plans? You know how that goes? And so there's this clear starting point that we're going to talk about and a clear ending point, but it gets jumbled in the middle. And what, what it is is this. There's a theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And it it cuts through all the clutter. And it says this. It says, in life, there are two roads, but there's only one choice. Now, I see how convoluted that gets because we think there are all kinds of choices. We think we could choose this religious belief or not a religious belief. And we could be atheistic. We could be a cynic. We could pursue all kinds of paths or no path at all, spiritually speaking. Or the other side of the coin, we can choose, the Bible says, to follow God. And so you see, even though this way looks like it has all these options, it really doesn't. It's just little side, side roads that you can take, little side trips you can take philosophically and theologically. But the reality is, Scripture is very clear from the beginning. You can choose to follow God or not. 
And so I want to take you back to a brief history. And I, I know some people love history. Others, it's not their favorite thing. So I'm going to keep this short. But if you go all the way back to Adam and Eve, they had a son. This son's name was Cain. His name means, I have gotten the man with the help of the Lord. Uh, Eve was so excited. Adam was excited. Their first child. But we know that these children uh, that they had both chose different paths. The second son comes along. His name is Abel. And the Bible says that um, Cain and Abel were two worshipers. And, and their story is told in Genesis 4. And, and it goes like this. God, God's very clear in the Old Testament in particular. He's clear today, but certainly back then. If you worship me, there's one of two ways God said to these two, I want you to worship I want you to bring a, an offering, a blood sacrifice to me. And Cain thought about it for a moment, and Cain uh, decided, um, I don't want to go that route. I mean, God said, worship me this way, but I'm going to worship God the way I choose to worship God. And that's always problematic, isn't it? You see, he was a worshiper, but he wanted to worship his way and not God's way. Abel, on the other hand, the younger brother, he, he, he obeys the Lord and he offers a bloody sacrifice. Now, I don't know if, if a bloody sacrifice offended Cain's sensibilities, if he was too refined for that. But I find it rather ironic, just a, a little bit later, he bludgeons his brother to death. And so you, you see this sort of dichotomy. And, and you know, this dichotomy plays out today, even when people think about Jesus dying a bloody sacrificial death on the cross. You could see where all of this is leading. Jesus paid the penalty we could never cover for ourselves is the point. But it begins way back in this story. So here's the interesting thing. This story represents a dividing line that runs through all of human history. And guess what? It runs through family lineages often too. And that is people choose a path in life. I grew up in a home where neither of my parents were believers. Later on they came to faith. But first I came to faith and my brothers came to faith. And, and, And now when I look back over... Uh, our uh, our uh, family lineage, it's interesting. Our whole family now follows the Lord. But it could have gone in a totally opposite direction. And that's not to say that every family fully follows God or doesn't. But I, I'm just pointing out, there, there is this pathway. There are these choices that are made. And they're highlighted for us way back in the book of Genesis. So in chapter 4, we see that Cain has uh, a whole list of descendants, and they're brilliant, and they're talented, They're capable. They're amazing people. You ought to read about them sometime. They're the fathers and mothers, if you will, of music, of engineering. On and on it goes. But but the Bible says they they clearly disregarded the Lord. You know, there's a saying, when something happens once, it's a phenomenon. When it happens twice, it's a coincidence. When it happens three times, it's a trend. Or in music, they put it like this. If you miss one note, it's a mistake. If you miss two notes, it's jazz. It's jazz. I don't know what three notes would be. But you see, there's a pattern, there's a trend, and you see these trend lines in families. You see it throughout the scripture. You see it throughout history. And so Adam and Eve lost a son. He was killed by his brother. And God gives him another son. His name is Seth. And in the Bible, names are significant. Seth means the appointed one or the one set in place of. Isn't that interesting? I love Bible names. They're so, they have such meaning to them, right? In place of, committed, so forth. Uh, my mother named me Gary. She named me after Gary Cooper. 80% of you don't even know who he is. <laughs> kind of like the royal families, you know. 
you know, who was this guy Enoch? Well, the royal families, uh, when they come up with names, even though they've got at least nine months to figure out what they're going to name a child, they never tell you. You notice that? They wait several days, and they say, in due course, we'll let you know. Well, what I like about that is uh, apparently they take these names very seriously. And so when you come to Enoch, his name is interesting. It means dedicated, committed, sold out. Not too long ago, I reread a book. I love uh, adventure books, especially when they're real-life ones. And uh, the story of Ernest Shackleton. Some of you know that name because his name became rather dominant in leadership circles a few years ago because of his extraordinary leadership. Shackleton uh, set out on a voyage to go to the Antarctic, 1914 to 1916. The name of the book is called The Endurance. It's named after his ship. They set sail, and they have all of these uh, incredible plans to, to go to the pole and, and, and to make a difference in terms of, uh, you know, circumnavigating this part of the globe. But within a few months, not very long after they set out, they, they run into icy waters, and immediately they're shipwrecked. And for 22 months, they're shipwrecked on the ice. The ship collapses. They're living on the ice. I mean, it's the most horrible conditions you can imagine. They didn't achieve their goal at all, and yet he becomes a legend in his own time. Why? Because of his ability to take 28 crew members, all of whom thought they would lose their lives, and to somehow get everybody out safely. Now, the interesting thing is, he bought a used ship. The original name of the ship wasn't the Endurance. But he renamed the ship, and he named it after his family motto. The family motto was, Endure. Endure. I love that story. You see, it became ingrained. That power, that ability to name things became ingrained. The family motto was ingrained in Shackleton. Endure. Whatever the conditions, persevere. Similarly, Enoch's name means dedicated, committed, stay the course. So when did Enoch live? Well, Enoch was an antediluvian. Now, that's a big word. Not to be confused with anti-DeLorean, which means a person that hates cars whose doors open vertically instead of horizontally. So don't confuse the two. Antediluvian means lived before the flood. Now, if you read literature much, you'll come across that term, I assure you, at some point. Antediluvian, before the great flood of Genesis 6. Another interesting way of documenting some scriptural reality that this flood came to the earth. And so... When you look at Enoch's lineage, it's very interesting. His great-great-grandson is a guy named Noah. Like Adam, like Seth, like Enoch, Noah and his family followed the Lord. Interesting. You see that trend line. So what's he famous for? He's famous because his story offers incredible insights into worship. And I want to share with you these insights this morning. And they're very simple ones. They're filling in the blanks this morning. Notice, Enoch walked with God. He walked with God. Seems so simple. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God for 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Now, this is the primary passage of reference about Enoch's life. In one sense, there's not much there. In another sense, there's a ton there. Think about it. We don't know a lot about Enoch, but about the time he became eligible for Social Security, he started to walk with God, 65. Depending on when he was born, maybe he had to be 66. But bottom line is, he walks with God. 
And, and the best insight we can get is it's because his wife gave birth to a child. Now, I've noticed this over the years as a pastor. If people are busy going about their life, and they get married, or they have children. As soon as they have children, a lot of times they show up on the church's doorstep with this little bundle in their hand and go, what do we do with this? What do we do now? And it's an incredible opportunity. I'm so thankful for the amazing children's ministry we have at Overlake because kids are so open and so malleable. Well, this boy, his name is Methuselah. You've probably heard of him, right? Have you ever heard of Methuselah? As old as fill-in-the-blank Methuselah. Methuselah is the oldest person mentioned in the Bible, 969 years. That's pretty amazing if you think about it. Uh, and just last month, this uh, gentleman passed away. He was reportedly 116 years old. The oldest living man died in June. He looks pretty good, just a little rough around the edges. The next guy lived to be 553, and uh, he doesn't look so good. So I can't imagine what 969 looks like, but it but, uh, gives you a little insight perhaps. But here's part of the stuff that you miss in the Bible unless you take the time to sort of walk slowly through it. Remember I mentioned names are significant? The name Methuselah means when he dies, judgment. Interesting name for a child. When he dies, judgment. Many scholars believe that his name is a prophecy and that in the year he died was the year of the great flood that I talked about. So see, there was a period of time when when God offered people an option to worship and to follow him as the true God. And if you know about the world at that time, the vast majority, the vast majority chose not to follow God. This is why Enoch's story stands out because twice Moses writes, and Moses isn't senile, he writes, Enoch walked faithfully with God. And he says a little bit about him. He says, Enoch walked faithfully with God. And what he's saying is, in an era when virtually nobody walked with God, Enoch was faithful. I don't think I would be remiss to say, we are living in an increasingly hostile environment toward Christians. Would you agree? Enoch walked faithfully with God. We feel the odds are sometimes stacked against us, but it was nothing compared to what Enoch faced. Moses was stunned. Enoch was faithful as he walked with God. In Psalm 1, there's an interesting passage. It's actually a prelude to the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus delivered a long time later. The reason we see the tie-in is because both begin with this little phrase, blessed. Blessed means more than happy. It means joy-filled and to be desired. And so the psalmist says this, God blesses. They're joy-filled and they're satisfied. The people who refuse evil advice and won't follow sinners or join in sneering at God, instead the law of the Lord makes them happy and they think about it day and night. They're like trees growing beside a stream, trees that produce fruit in season and always have leaves. These people succeed in everything they do. My only problem with that translation makes it sound like there's a lot of people, but when you read it in most translations, it's like there's one person going against the flow, the godly person who goes against the grain of peer pressure. Pretty rare. Enoch was one of those kinds of people. I never really appreciated this uh, Psalm 1 until a number of years ago when I was beginning in full-time ministry. My first church was in San Diego, and, and I was living there, and I befriended a gentleman, and it was part of the church, and he said, I want to take you fishing. I go, great, where are we going to go, to the ocean? He goes, no, I'm going to take you to the desert. I'm like, fishing in the desert? I'm from Chicago. This makes no sense. 
And so he takes me to the desert just outside of Yuma, and we're going over these barren roads. There's like nothing, barely any cacti even. And all of a sudden, we round a bend, and I see the, the Colorado River, and, and there are these, there's this flowing water, and on both sides, it's like tree-lined, it's green-lined. It's the most beautiful thing I'd seen that day after all that barrenness. And, and since then, this image has stayed with me. It's a picture right out of Psalms. We're people living in a desert, but when God gets a hold of your life, you're by these streams of living water, as Jesus describes them. And the interesting thing is, you could translate this passage, God plucks up this believer and transplants them by the living water. And you know, that's exactly what God does when he comes into our life. He takes us from barrenness and he puts us into productivity. And that's exactly what he did with this dedicated Enoch. Well, notice also Enoch walked with God. He didn't run with God. Some of us want to run all the time. Uh, Eugene Peterson has a title of one of his books that goes like this. He says, following Jesus is a long obedience in the same direction. That's the image I want you to get this morning. That we're going to walk with Jesus for a long time. It's not a run. It's not a race. Peterson also says this, worship doesn't satisfy our hunger for God. It whets our appetite. You know, this worship we just had, I was like, give me more. Give me more. Uh, And at the end, we're going to give that opportunity for those that want it. Give me more. You see, worship has a way of igniting us. So Enoch walked with God. Secondly, a second insight on his worshipful life, he was faithful to God. When Paul talks about offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, he has death in mind. Only this death is a different kind of death. It's a death to an old way of life. See, something I don't want you to miss, but I know how easy it is to miss. When you commit your life to Jesus, it's not just praying a simple prayer and not letting God take charge of your life. It's not just uh, signing your name on a dotted line as if that seals everything forever. When we come into God's presence, yes, it's by grace, and yes, that salvation is forever, but there's so much more behind it. Not one song we sang this morning and not one song we'll sing later, pay attention to this, is about half-heartedness. None of them. They're all about, I serve God with my whole heart. I serve him. And I know that's aspirational because none of us can perpetually live at that level, but that's what God wants us to desire. He wants us to be changed people. Think about this. A.W. Tozer was a pastor who lived in Chicago. He was a mystic. He thought deep things. And he once said this, he said, this is what marks people that are following the crucified Jesus. So picture this as he talks. You give your life to Jesus, you crucify your life with his. He says, here's the thing, here are the marks of a crucified person. Number one, they're only facing in one direction. You know, when you're hanging on the cross, one direction. Secondly, he says, they can never turn back. And thirdly, he says, they no longer have any plans of their own. You see, that's what it means to follow Jesus. Sometimes we sweeten it up and we try to make it more appealing, and it is an amazing and appealing life. But I think we often miss the fact that this grace is costly. And when we follow Jesus, he's calling for our whole life. Now, he may have you in the art field. He may have you in business. He may have you as a mother and a homemaker or a college student or a high school student. 
But the reality is, Jesus wants you totally sold out to him. So Enoch names appears in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 of all places. It, chapter 11 is called the Faith Hall of Fame. The only people who get in there are pretty stellar in terms of somehow their passion to follow the Lord. In many cases, they were blessed incredibly. In other cases, they faced the most devastating circumstances. This chapter describes men and women thrown to lions, carved to pieces. And you know there are more Christians in the world today that are facing that experience than ever in history. There are more martyrs today than ever. That may not be our experience for sure. It wasn't even Enoch's experience. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life. He never experienced being thrown to lions. He never even experienced death. He couldn't be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Now, something that strikes me about Enoch's life, I love the fact we don't know much about his life. Because I don't expect my name, my name's not going to appear in the Bible, neither is yours. Some of us are going to live lives from a human perspective that that don't have the footlights shining on them. Most of us. But there was something about this guy who we know virtually nothing about, but God knew everything about, that God said, this is what faith is supposed to look like. God was impressed. There is one thing, though, we have in common with Enoch, and that is life expectancies are longer today. Now, we're not going to live to be 365, I don't think. But you know, in the first century when Jesus lived, Since then, the average life expectancy has doubled. More time for us to get in trouble, it seems. But it's doubled. So if you're under 45, I want you to cover your ears for just a moment. Because I want to speak to those of you on the back half of life. I like the way they put it at the golf courses. You're on the back nine. Uh, You're at halftime, believe it or not. So if you're 40 or 45, guess what? You're on the second half. Gordon McDonald writes this. He talks about the different faith challenges we face today than being thrown to lions and and, uh, somehow being killed. He says, ours, at least in the immediate future, is not the question of buckling under overt or severe persecution. Rather, we face the questions, can one last and can one grow? And can one actually contemplate being more valuable for the kingdom in the second half of life than the first? Resilience for first-generation Christians had a lot to do with real suffering. Resilience for us, in most cases, has more to do with lasting and thriving in a spiritual way. Now, what he's saying here is profound. I became so moved by this about a decade ago that I, I took a church I was leading through a rather intensive period of time to take a hard look at the question How is it that when we hit 35 and 40 and 45 and beyond, we are often, not always, and Overlake's amazing in so many ways, but we are often less productive and less valuable for the kingdom? Why is it that we who have experience and wisdom and resources are often less passionate than young generations coming up? I I love the story Mike tells about being in a worship service in South Africa, and he says, you know, the worship... Not to be critical, but the worship wasn't of the level we enjoy from week to week. He said, but the thing that struck him was the front of the church was packed with people worshiping the Lord with full-throated worship, and they were the elders, elderly, if you will, of the church. We should be leading the charge. 
We shouldn't sit back in our comfort and in our satisfaction and assume we've played our part, we've done our bit. You see, we can choose a road here too. We can either grow better or we can grow bitter in following Jesus. So McDonald adds this, one of the saddest experiences to awaken at old age and discover that one has only been using a small part of himself. Aren't you glad that you're in a church where you can be fully invested in so many ways? E. Stanley Jones is a famous Methodist missionary, and he traveled around the world for over 50 years, thousands and thousands of miles, speaking to presidents and prime ministers. He was so well-renowned in his day. At the age of 83, um, after speaking to millions of people, he suffered a debilitating stroke. It left him without speech or mobility. In the months before he died, he managed to mutter through these paralyzed lips a manuscript of a remarkable book. It's short, disjointed in places, as you could imagine, but he describes what it's like to walk with Jesus over the lifetime. Listen to what he writes in his old age. There are scars on my faith, but underneath those scars, there are no doubts. Christ has me with the consent of all my being, with the cooperation of all my life. The song I sing is a lit song, not the temporary exuberance of youth that often fades when middle age and old age sets in with their disillusionment and cynicism. No, he says, I'm 83. I'm more excited today about being a Christian than when I was 18 and I first put my feet on the way. That's the life I want to live. What a great story. We ought to be leading the charge, folks. The third lesson, interestingly, flows out of the first two. You see, Enoch walked faithfully with God. And when we walk faithfully with God, we please God. And when we please God, he delights in us. And like Enoch, our lives become impressive in his presence. Listen to what uh, Hebrews 11.5 says. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he didn't experience death. He couldn't be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Now, this is an amazing story. There are only two people in the Bible, Enoch and Elijah, who were told never experienced death. What is it about these two? When I was a teenager, I was growing up in the inner city of Chicago, and I went to this incredible little small church of about 300 in the city in, in an amazing time, an amazing time of wonderful godly leaders and, and friends. And I remember an older saint in the church died. And uh, we went to this thing called the wake. We don't have these too often anymore, but you go into a funeral home and it's very quiet in there. And this is usually a few days before the funeral. And there's a body in the casket. And usually the casket was open. And, you know, that was a whole experience in it itself. And you're there. But then you go out after that quiet moment of meditation and thoughts about that person. And, and you look around and you see people that you haven't seen for years. Because now that this loved one has died, family and friends gather. People come from all over. And, and we were having an amazing time. In fact, that night after this gentleman's passing, we stood around for hours talking and laughing and carrying on. It was, it was hilarious, so much so I forgot where I was. At one point, I blurted out to everybody in my circle, this is so much fun, we got to get together like this more often. <laughs> and then I realized what you've already realized. I was at a funeral. I was at a wake. A fun time. But you know what? That's exactly how I felt. And I think when we get to heaven, it'll be just like that. This is awesome. Yeah, some of us have to pass through the veil of death and the tears that flow with that. But this is what heaven will be like, a great reunion. 
Well, God was having such a great time with Enoch. He said, let's just skip the death part. Let's pass up on the funeral and let's get to the good stuff. And he takes him home. And so after 365 years, we read all of a sudden, Enoch walked with God and then he was not. For God took him. There's a great old Sunday school story about the kid. The little boy goes to church. He comes home from Sunday school and his mother grills him a little bit. What did you learn in Sunday school today? He said, well, we learned about this guy named Enoch. This guy Enoch walked with God every day. And one morning he got up and he left the house. He started walking with God. And they were walking toward God's house. And toward the end of the day, God said, look, Enoch, we're closer to my house than yours. Why don't you just come home with me? Beautiful retelling of that story. But I want to close with this thought. It's where I started. Life gets convoluted and messy. But when you go back to the beginning, it's clear. God calls us to follow him. And some follow and others don't. That there are two roads really, but there's only one choice. Jesus repeats a lot of these themes we've talked about. Jesus actually talks about a judgment to come. And he says this, he says, as a follower of mine, if you claim to be a follower, you're either bearing good fruit or you're not. Either I'm Lord of your life or I'm not. There's no kind of half-heartedness in this, Jesus says. Either you're building my life on on me or you're not. Now, he's not saying we're perfect, we're not going to mess up. That's not the point. He's saying, is that your heart desire? To put me first, to follow me, to, to make me your path in life? That's the key. And he goes on, actually, and he says this. He says, go in through the narrow gate. This is kind of the summary. The gate to destruction is wide, and the road that leads there is easy to follow. And a lot of people go through that gate, millions of people. But the gate of life is narrow. The road that leads there is hard, and only a few find it. But those that find it find life. And I, I thought of this example. Jesus is really saying, you know, when you boil it all down, friends, life is like a funnel. And Jesus, you see, he says, all of the cost to follow me is right up front. He said, unless you're willing to die and become my disciple, you're not able to follow me. Unless you count the cost, unless you give it all up. Jesus was narrowing the pathway. He's letting us know up front, there is no cheap followership. And Jesus says a lot of people look at that and they reject it. Ah, that's going to cost me. But notice the paradox. The deeper you get into the funnel, what happens? It opens up. The same Jesus said, I've come that you'll have life and have it in abundance. But so many people choose the Broadway. And it looks good. It's easy. It's big. Everybody's doing it. But what happens the further you get into it? It gets narrower and narrower. That's the choice that's before us. If like Enoch, you aspire to live a lifestyle of worship, know it all begins by deciding to put God first in your life. Let that be your goal. Which road will you choose? Let's pray. Lord, as we pray, we're we're moved by a life like Enoch's. A man who followed you, who like others after him, walked a pathway that was... uh, marked by a lot of challenges, no doubt. But he walked faithfully with you and he pleased you. And Lord, in a few moments, we're going to worship. And in that worship, we want to please you. We want to, we want to live up by your grace and by your spirit to the hope that's raised in these songs of worship. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace to us. Thank you for making it clear that we can follow you with wholehearted, full-throttled 
full-throated devotion. It's in your name we pray. Amen.